You're listening to Ready, Set, Israel, bringing you the latest out of Israel and the Middle East every week. Let's get into it. Hi, this is Yassi, Senior Analyst here at Ready, Set, Israel. When I'm not focused on the podcast, I'm actually a law student at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. As such, we decided to bring you a legal analysis of one of the biggest stories in Israel this week, the failure of the Knesset to renew the law banning Palestinian family reunification. Many of our American listeners may not have been aware that this law exists and therefore are unfamiliar with the justifications surrounding it, as well as confused over the political debate that occurred over it this week in the Knesset. I'm going to do my best to break that down right now and explain why this law was originally passed, what the failure to renew the law this week says about Israel's current political situation, and why the law actually touches upon themes that go to the heart of Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state. When anti-Zionists talk about discriminatory Israeli laws, the law against Palestinian reunification is one of the laws most commonly discussed. While non-Jewish spouses of Israeli citizens become automatically eligible for Israeli citizenship and thus permanent Israeli residency, this law officially makes Arab residents of the Gaza Strip and the West Bank ineligible to apply for citizenship despite their spouses being full Israeli citizens. However, like most things in Israel, the story of this law needs to be put into its proper context to be fully understood. The law was originally passed in 2003 as a temporary measure after a series of terrorist attacks were carried out by Palestinians who had gained Israeli citizenship through marriage to Israeli Arabs. But the law has successfully been renewed every year since then for 17 years. Numerous legal challenges against the law went up to the Israeli Supreme Court until the court finally rejected the petitions in 2012 and ruled that the law was in fact constitutional since non-Jewish residents of the West Bank and Gaza, as opposed to non-Jewish residents from other parts of the world, are considered to be quote-unquote enemy nationals, and therefore a relevant legal distinction could be made. Understandably, This ruling garnered much controversy, since Palestinian citizens of Israel are, ethnically speaking, no different from Palestinians living in the West Bank and Gaza. On the other hand, the law touches upon a fundamental theme of Israel's existential dilemma, how to balance democratic considerations against legitimate demographic concerns about maintaining a Jewish majority. The state of Israel came into control of the West Bank and Gaza through a defensive war, And it would therefore be unfair to expect Israel to sacrifice its Jewish character for the sake of a population that largely supported the war against Israel, whom Israel never asked to have control over, and to whom Israel offered a national state of their own on multiple occasions, which they turned down, and who still at the end of the day do exercise more group self-determination than many similar national groups in the world today. This week, after much delay, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and alternate Prime Minister Yair Lapid came very close to repassing the law. However, at the end, the vote was tied 59 to 59, and the bill failed to pass, partly because one member of Bennett's party decided not to vote for it, but mainly because Netanyahu's Likud party, which is currently sitting in the opposition, refused to vote for it. In a way, this was the first test of the government's ability to protect Israeli interests as a Jewish state, and it definitely exposed the contradictions of the new government. To others, it seems almost confusing that Likud would vote the same way as Meretz, Labor, and the Arab Ram Party against renewing the law, and confirm the hypocrisy of Benjamin Netanyahu, 
who claims to be the great protector of Israeli security and Israel's Jewish majority. Bennett and Lapid accused Likud of sacrificing Israeli security for political points, but it's hard to say because there hasn't ever been a situation where the Israeli government was not able to extend this law solely based on the votes from Knesset members in the coalition and instead needed the votes of opposition members. Remember, although he failed, Netanyahu did make offers to Ram as well in order to create a coalition. So would Lapid and Bennett have voted against renewing the law had the shoe been on the other foot? To a certain extent, the Likud's argument is correct. The government was created in order to sideline Netanyahu and the Likud, even though actually many of its members are ideological allies with Likud when it comes to the biggest Israeli political issue, that being the conflict. The argument from Bennett and Lapid was that the imperative nature of the law meant that Likud should have put politics aside and voted with Lapid and Bennett and against the other members of the government in merits and labor, whom Bennett and Lapid had created the coalition with in the first place. Bennett stated, quote, there are things that you don't play with. State security is a red line and the state needs control on who enters it and who becomes a citizen of it. Netanyahu countered, Bennett and Lapid, you are the government. The responsibility is yours. Everything depends on you. You cannot set up a government that is based on anti-Zionist forces and then come to us and tell us, save us from this fracture and failure. Now, as many have pointed out, including Yair Lapid, the actual function of the law is to protect Israel's ability to maintain a stable Jewish majority. It is for this reason that anti-Zionists have been celebrating the failure to renew the law, and which does seem to support Bennett's criticism that Likud indeed crossed a red line. On the other hand, many see the failure of the Bennett and Lapid coalition to pass this bill protecting the Jewish majority as the first casualty of the fact that a Zionist majority no longer exists in today's Israeli government. But reasonable people can certainly disagree on this issue. What do you think? Comment on our Facebook page or retweet us at Ready Set Israel to let us know. Thanks for listening to this special analysis. And now we're on to Jillian and Gianna with our next segment. Thank you, Yassi, for that important update. This is Jillian with Ready, Set, Israel. Today, I'm happy to introduce our newest segment called Conversation Corner. Over the next few weeks, you'll be hearing candid conversation between our hosts on all types of important issues coming out of Israel, as well as issues affecting diaspora Jewry and also issues of anti-Semitism. So today, and myself and Gianna are going to initiate this first segment where we're going to be tackling an important conversation on the latest developments surrounding support for Israel in Congress. Thank you, Jillian. So last week, Representative Ilhan Omar interviewed on CNN by Jake Tapper said that she did not regret the controversial comments that she made a few weeks before. Earlier last month, Rep. Omar was criticized for equating Israel and the U.S. with terrorist groups such as the Taliban and Hamas. Criticism included a public letter from 12 of her Jewish Democratic colleagues asking her to clarify her remarks, which she did. However, during Tapper's interview, Omar said that she did not regret her comments before, discussing that she believes the ICC to be a forum where victims of crimes against humanity can find justice. When Tapper pressed her more on the charges of anti-Semitism, Rep. Omar said that she clarified her remarks and apologized for the offensive language, but her colleagues have engaged in quote-unquote Islamophobic tropes, which she did not elaborate on, and have not been partners in seeking justice around the world. Members to realize that they haven't 
been partners in injustice. They haven't been, um, you know, equally engaging uh, in seeking justice uh, around the world. So first of all, Jillian, a lot of people might be wondering what is so bad about these comments. And as someone who is familiar with the current ways in which anti-Semitism is manifested today, what makes these words just so troubling? And how is this intensified by comments that Rep. Omar herself and her other counterparts in the quote-unquote squad have made in the past? Thanks, Gianna. I, I really think like this is a really important issue just because especially when it comes to Representative Omar, it's not just about what she said on her interview with Jake Tapper, but it's the compounded effect of, you know, anti-Semitic comments that at this point to me feel like a trend as opposed to a mistake. She has mentioned that members of Congress are paid to support Israel, saying, you know, it's quote, it's all about the Benjamins, as well as multiple other things that I would qualify as anti-Semitic. So at this point, I think it's past, oh, I had a slip up. And it's more so there is a clear political choice to make, you know, these kinds of comments and continuously have them, you know, land in the anti-Semitic field that has a real effect. So that's why it, it bothers me. And it's intensified because it's gone from, you know, possibly suggestive comments from the more progressive side of the Democratic Party about what, you know, support for Israel means to more just like explicitly and salient comments that could potentially have, you know, drastic effects on the safety of Jews within the districts that they they represent. And I think it's really dangerous. You know, I don't think that it's something that, you know, is characteristic of the entire Democratic Party. Like, I am hopeful that the you know entire Democratic Party still holds that support for Israel, which has been bipartisan in Congress. I mean, just today, we saw Congressman Gregory Meeks leading a bipartisan group of members from the House Foreign Affairs Committee, which which Representative Omar sits on to Israel. And, you know, he's been a big supporter of that issue. The, the other issue, I think, is really the fact that she called out her her colleagues as not being, you know, partners in seeking justice when some of the members who are on to, signed onto that letter have been champions of progressive issues in Congress. And it's really unfortunate because I think at the end of the day, the idea of Judaism in general and the idea of Zionism is just and supporting progressive causes is been championed by Jews in the diaspora and in the United States. So I just think it's really unfortunate that you know, she took the opportunity to one, not apologize, but two, to make divisive comments about, you know, what her, her colleagues have and haven't done when they were simply asking her for clarification. Yeah, absolutely. I want to touch on a few points that you made. I think, first of all, like what we said in the beginning, if it was just one slip up where she didn't know the history of what was behind an anti-Semitic trope of something about money, for example, it would have been one thing, but it's like the rep repetition of comment after comment after comment that is playing into these like age old tropes. Like money is a huge one to touch on, like all about the Benjamins. That was one that I think like shocked most of people in the Jewish community. So I think it's just the, the concept digging in and like playing into these stereotypes that seems intentional, not just like a mistake. So this is another example of it. And I think what you just said about how Jews have obviously been huge partners in justice and kind of being the energy behind a lot of these a lot of these movements and causes and it kind of alienates the Jewish people that are in these positions of um, leadership 
that are working so hard. And then she's going to turn around and say, like, they're not partisan justice. They're not working with us. It's alienating and marginalizing the Jewish people that are involved. And it kind of disrespects all the work that they have done. So I think that kind of goes into the next question that I wanted to touch on of how does this translate, trickle down into people like you and me who just graduated colleges and other people like us who are involved in progressive causes that oftentimes are excluded because of support for Israel. I think we're seeing that kind of reflecting what's going on in Congress, what we're seeing on college campuses and other progressive causes like that. So what have you seen? What has your experience been? And why is this so problematic? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's totally problematic. Someone, I don't know who said this, but someone said recently that in the past, you know, two months that we saw the conflict going on between Israel and Hamas, that we all live on campus now. And I thought that was literally the perfect way to characterize what's going on because young Jews have have been warning our parents and you know the Jewish establishment that this is what we are experiencing on college campuses if you walk into a you know meeting for any progressive cause you could say lgbtq plus issues you know poverty issues low income issues you know racial issues unfortunately you know sometimes students are going to be met with Oh, you're a Zionist? Oh, you support Israel? Unfortunately, we can't, you know, allow you to participate in our event or we can't co-sponsor this event with you. And we've been warning the adults in our community that this is not just going to stay on campus. This is going to affect and poison really the entire rhetoric that we're seeing because these kids are not just on campus anymore. They've graduated. They're doctors, they're lawyers, they're future members of Congress, they're future presidents of institutions and universities, they're future you know, business people that are gonna be affecting the business and economic relationship between our two countries. And I think that you know, subjecting ourselves to this litmus test of, you know, oh, I'm progressive and I care about all of these things, but you know, when I come into this this space, I'm just gonna check my Zionism at the door and I'm gonna just be a quiet, nice, good Jew and not say anything, then we're in for it. We really are. I don't know, what has your experience been like? Yeah, I think I've seen a lot of this firsthand in like a lot of different ways. I think the university in general is a breeding ground that kind of like trickles outward, not really necessarily tripping down in Congress. I think it starts in universities and then like you said, it comes out in different places. I personally bonded with people over like being a proponent of a certain social justice movement or cause on like platforms like social media, especially that was such a big way for us to kind of like express that during COVID. And then later someone sees that I post something about Israel and then it's like, they don't want to have that kind of conversation with me anymore because they think that there's no way I could be on their side about this one issue if I support Israel. And that's kind of the, the feeling that I get from a lot of like my friends who deal with the same issue and they kind of the feeling is like, if you are a Zionist, there's no way that you could support another like human rights, social justice cause because in essence, we're seen as like being so just like villains, I guess is the word. So I think like, I felt kind of unwelcome in a lot of spaces because of these issues. And like, I couldn't really like connect people on different issues because this roadblock was in the way. And I think it's extremely unfortunate because like looking at the history of the Jewish people in the United States, especially, like they have been just kind of like the first ones to be on the ground when it comes to social issues and like marching side by side with like, for example, the black community or the LGBTQ community. And like, that it's kind of turned around and like slap in the face of like, you guys don't support our causes. Like you're not welcome here after so much partnership has been kind of gone on in the past. So I think it's, it's like extremely upsetting to me to see like so many of my friends and myself being like pushed away from these causes because of the different belief that I have 
and there's like no way to find common ground in a lot of people's eyes because this issue is a, a non-starter, I guess. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point, you know, that you make that it also like it actually affects people's lives and personal social health that they feel completely isolated from peers. It's not only political activism that, you know, people get kicked out of, but it affects people's employment. It affects people's, you know, social capital. And I think that it's really, it's devastating on the mental health, um, as well as just people's ability to get, you know, somewhere in their careers and their personal lives. And I also just think that it's extended beyond just, you know, oh, you're a Zionist. Oh, you support Israel. You're not welcome here. But it's it's gone into explicitly. Oh, you have a Jewish star on your flag at the at the the march in D.C. a few years ago, the LGBTQ march a few years ago. Oh, you can't march with us because that's that represents the occupation. When you know the 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 Star of David is an explicitly Jewish symbol that has you know been associated with Jews before the state of Israel was created and before political Zionism was, you know, going on. So I just think that it is inherently anti-Semitic and it's made malleable by these people who just take whatever political issue they want on the right or the left. It's not just the right or left issue, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit next. And they'll, they'll say, oh, you know, let's scapegoat the Jews for whatever troubles we have or whatever, you know, thing we don't like. And it's becoming explicitly anti-Jewish, not just anti-Zionist. So it's really, um, it's horrible. But I want to go a little bit to the next point that I, I had mentioned just now about it coming from both sides of the aisle. So we've seen a lot of news coming out of Israel. Obviously, anti-Semitism in the diaspora today, especially in the United States, comes from both the right and the left. That is a fact. And so a few days after Representative Omar's comments, we saw Representative Paul Gosar from Arizona revealed that he was planning a public fundraiser, or he didn't reveal it, it was revealed about him, that he was planning a public fundraiser with Nick Fuentes, who is a white nationalist that marched in Charlottesville in 2017 and has famously touted Holocaust denial and praised. The math doesn't quite seem to add up there. I don't think you'd result uh, in six million, maybe two hundred to three hundred thousand cookies. Things like segregation and anti-Semitism, and so Gosar defended the fundraiser in a tweet, but he also was a little wishy-washy with reporters, saying he had no idea what was going on. And what's clear from both of these issues, from Omar and Gosar, is that. Anti-Semitism is 100% excused, whether it's in language or in action, and it's coming from both sides of the aisle. So I'm not here to debate, obviously, you know, who you think is worse, because I really, I said before, I think anti-Semitism holds no distinct political home. It's 100% malleable. But I guess, are you at all worried about this normalization, especially when it's coming from decision makers? And how do you think, you know, we... How do you think Jews go forward when it's coming from both sides of the aisle? You know, Jews have an, an inherent political home on the left in the United States, which still holds to be true, as well as some on the political right. But I guess, how do, how do we manage when it's coming from both sides and even the center as well? I think that's the golden question. I'm curious to see how it plays out, because I think Jews are, I think for, like you said, it's been a democratic home for the Jews for years and years and years. And I'm just wondering if that's going to flip because I think it kind of comes from both ways because on one hand, the past administration was so pro-Israel that 
anyone who was opposed to that administration is going so far the other way and they're kind of holding faster to their ground and saying like we oppose anything that has to do with Trump and anything that he supported so that's making them kind of swing further in the direction opposite of Israel and support for Israel but I think people are I hope people start to see kind of how what comments like Ilhan Omar has made how dangerous they are to the Jews, how just upsetting they are and just unsettling. And I hope that once people realize that, then maybe the, the pendulum will kind of swing back to even out because I'm worried that it's going to push a lot of Democrats away from the party and kind of make them like swing either away from politics in general and just like not or kind of go the other direction, which is be interesting to see how it plays out. Because I think in general, we're seeing a shift in the Democratic Party with people like the squad making waves and making their new kind of face for the Democratic Party very clear. So I'm curious to see. And I think like if people can kind of weed out the extremism from both sides, from the other side of the aisle they sit on, because I think we're used to kind of seeing anti-Semitism in pointy hats and like pitchforks from the KKK. But now this is new. This is a new form of anti-Semitism people haven't really become familiar with. So I'm hoping that people kind of see that it's coming from both sides. Like we both know ourselves but I think it's new to a lot of people. So if people are able to identify it from both sides and see it on both sides and call it out when it happens. I think things might be able to settle out, but I'm curious to see because right now it's looking like things are being pushed in a direction that haven't been pushed in decades. Do you have thoughts on? Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you, Gianna. I think like the the thing that's going on is not only is the anti-Semitism coming from both sides of the aisle, but both parties are experiencing crazy I don't know if you can even call it development because it seems like, you know, it's pushing them back. The Democratic Party is having this issue amongst progressives and the establishment versus while the Republican Party has basically been overtaken by Trump, despite protests from more moderate establishment conservatives like, you know, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who are trying to keep the party in check. And so I think like simultaneously that issue is going on and we see this anti-Semitism coming at Jews from both sides. And it's like, you know, we can't just be worried with the future of the party, but we got to be worried with how the future of the party affects real people's lives. And at the end of the day, it has cataclysmic of, you know, effects on the safety of Jews in the United States coming from people who are willing to fundraise with a man who will march and say Jews will not replace us, and from a woman who will double down on anti-Semitism and then tell her Jewish partners in Congress that, oh, you know, you, you don't care about progressive causes, you are not partners in justice, when they've been passing you know, legislation for years and marching on the front lines to make sure minorities in the United States are safe and secure, not just Jews, but any any minority. So I think it's really unfortunate. I don't know where it's going to go. I guess the end of this conversation is just, we don't know how to resolve it, but we know we need to call it out from both sides. And, you know, we can't, we can't just do it when it's politically convenient. We can't just say, you know, Trump or whoever associates with him, you know, is a racist and, you know, I'm only going to call out white supremacy, anti, anti-Semitism that comes from white supremacists. And I can't be a leftist and say, you know, I'm only, I mean, a right wing person and say, you know, I'm only going to call out these woke leftists, you know, when they're spewing their anti-Semitic stuff on campuses. It needs to come all the time whenever it happens. I mean, I try to do it as much as I can. 
despite whatever political home I affiliate with. So I think that's really, you know, what we got to do and we got to resolve it quickly and efficiently. So next up, we're going to go to Blake with an update COVID-19 out of Israel. Thank you, Gianna and Jillian, for that story. Earlier this year, Israel was praised for having one of the most effective and comprehensive vaccine distribution programs globally. Israeli doctors and scientists knew at the time of the distribution that there was a potential for variants to pop up on a global scale. With the emergence of the Delta variant, health officials are worried in trying to mitigate the spread of what appears to be a more highly transmissible variant of COVID-19. With us today to unpack the Israeli government's response to the emerging Delta variant is health reporter for the Jerusalem Post, Rosella Tirkati. Rosella, thanks again for being on the podcast with us today. My pleasure. So in the last 48 hours, Israel has registered over 501 new cases. How do you see Israeli citizens uh, gearing up for for what might be another round of nationwide lockdowns? So we really have to say that at the moment we are, we're still far from a, from a lockdown. The, as much as the, the, the trends are worrisome and cases are, are going up, all authorities, all experts agree that, you know, as long as the increase in morbidity, meaning in serious, in serious cases, is relatively low, there's no reason to rush into drastic restrictions. That said, people people are worried. Some people more than others. Some people, you know, just are just happy to go about with their life. And yes, the the main question right now, you know, it's summer, I guess, is you know whether to travel or not. Some people are canceling their vacations. Some people are going on vacation because you know. Who knows if they're gonna if there's if there's gonna be another chance to do it in the next few months? So I would say that uh, right now this is one of the main hot topics in Israel. Sure, yeah, especially groups going in, groups going out, travel plans seem to fluctuate more than ever. Knowing knowing that the government doesn't want to upend daily life as they had done before the introduction of widespread vaccinations, what tactics and strategies does the public want to see? from the government to combat extreme spikes in infections? And what political developments is the government balancing to continue to combat the pandemic? So basically, the new government was sworn in as these increasing cases started. Since the beginning, they have been saying that their strategy is to obtain a maximum level of protection for people's health, but at the same time, creating the minimum destruction to people's life which I think is basically what most people want. So they, so far, they really have been insisting on things like, you know, convincing more people to get vaccinated, including older people who, for whatever reason, haven't yet, but also, you know, teens, preteens who were just recently authorized to get to get vaccinated. They are trying, you know, they reintroduced the mandatory mask indoors, so they are trying to both encourage and, and really ask people to, to keep this rule and also like trying to step up enforcement, as well as trying to fix a lot of problems around the airport. Problems with the testing complex, problem with people not respecting the rules of, of quarantine. And this is this is more or less what, what, what they have been doing. Again, even as of today, they decided after a meeting, the, the government decided not to impose any drastic restrictions in addition to what we what what's already there. The question is, you know, 
if the again if serious cases start to really go up dramatically how both the government and the public will will react and we'll just have to wait and see sure the public reaction is is definitely one to to keep an eye on and see whether the public acts first and then the government or vice versa so definitely something to keep our eye on uh, earlier this week, the Israeli government released an analysis that shows that the Pfizer and Bio- BioNTech COVID vaccine appears to be less effective against infections caused by the Delta variant uh, compared to other strains of COVID-19. While the vaccine provides 67% protection against infection, it still provides 93% protection against serious illness. And in June, Israeli scientists were some of the first to report on the link between the rare cases of heart inflammation and the COVID-19 vaccination. Can you talk a little bit about how Israel has been leading the way on COVID-19 research and how are Israeli scientists contributing to the fight against this global pandemic? So listen, Israel has, you know, is very advanced when it comes to research and medical research. And it was already very advanced in the medical field before the pandemic hit. Because of its very sort of like special condition, and especially because Israel was able to roll out one of the most successful vaccination campaigns in the world, as basically everyone has, has recognized, you know, Israel was really able to be a test country for the success of the vaccine against the coronavirus. So, you know... Everyone has been looking at the data coming from Israel about how is the vaccine effective, how much, you know, it's effective, as as you said, in different parameters, in preventing infections, in preventing serious symptoms and hospitalization and and death. And Israeli Israeli scientists have been absolutely on on top of these things. There's more, like, uh, you know, there are Israeli doctors and researchers and hospitals have been doing quite a lot of research, for example, on the subject of what's the you know po- possible connection with between the vaccine and and fertility which has been a topic that many people have been and been worried about and i do want to say that you know absolutely all the studies that have been done so far show that there is absolutely no impact on the on fertility both male and female fertility from the covid vaccine while uh, they are seeing a possible impact of the infection itself on, especially on male fertility. So this is just one example, but but there are countless more, you know, what happens if you are an immunocompromised patient and you get vaccinated, how much protection you have, how much the vaccine provides protection besides for the antibodies count that everyone has been focusing on, but what other realms of protection the vaccine offers and so on and so forth. The Ministry of Health is in this unique position of really having a lot of data about a lot of vaccinated people because over almost 56% of all population of Israel receive a vaccine and therefore they can really like offer a lot of like just just data you know matching age groups background diseases and so on and so forth and i think that to the what you mentioned for example about the ministry of health putting out data about the effectiveness of the vaccine against the delta variant was was a result of of that and I think, yeah, I think, listen, the contribution in this in this sense of, of Israel to the to the world and to the fight against COVID has been has been very important. Marcelo, thanks again for your contributions and your highlights, and we hope to have you back with us soon. Thank you very much. Thank you so much to everybody for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode, powered by Hasbro Fellowships, and make sure to follow us at Ready Set Israel on all of our social media platforms to keep up with the latest news about our podcast. 
Until next Thursday, that's Ready, Set, Israel.